0: Well, hello, hello, and greetings. Welcome to the iFormerX podcast. I'm Stuart Haynes, and I'm so glad you're taking the time out of your busy schedule to engage in this professional development activity. iFormerX is an online community of like-minded health professionals where we explore the evidence that informs practice. And if you're not already a member, please consider joining. Membership is free, but you've got to head on over To the iFormerX website, which is iFormerX.org, and sign up today. I'm biased, and I think pharmacists are uniquely positioned and well-qualified to manage drug therapy. That's what I've been trained to do. Unfortunately, in most practice settings, pharmacists are legally prohibited from initiating or adjusting drug therapy. Now, don't get me wrong, there are lots and lots of pharmacists today who get to prescribe medications either under an expanded scope of practice through a credentialing and privileging process at their institution, or under a collaborative drug therapy management agreement with a physician or a nurse practitioner. However, most pharmacists in the United States simply aren't permitted to initiate or adjust drug therapy commonly used to treat chronic diseases like diabetes, dyslipidemia, or hypertension. Now, there are a variety of arguments about why pharmacists shouldn't be allowed to prescribe medications, and most of those arguments really aren't supported by data. On the other hand, there's plenty of data to support the notions that pharmacists who are well-trained and who are empowered to prescribe antihypertensive medications can help patients achieve good blood pressure control. Rates of control in the pharmacist care groups in most studies were as good as other primary care providers and often better. So no one can make the claim that pharmacists provide inferior care. But is it cost effective to deploy pharmacists in this way? And I think that's the real question. Our healthcare system simply can't afford to pay pharmacists for drug therapy management if it's going to increase the cost of care. So that's why a recently published cost-effectiveness analysis by Dave Dixon and his colleagues, which appeared in JAMA Network Open, is such a critically important paper, and why I invited Candace Garwood and Stefania Chian to write a commentary about it. So Dr. Garwood is professor of pharmacy practice at Wayne State University, Eugene Applebaum College of Pharmacy and Health Sciences. And Dr. Chian is currently the PGY-2 ambulatory care pharmacy practice resident at Harper University Hospital at the Detroit Medical Center. And so as it happens, Dr. Garwood is also her residency program director. So Candice, it's great to have you back on the iFormerX podcast. And Stefania, this may be your first time you're contributing to iFormRx, but I certainly hope it won't be the last.
1: Thanks for the invitation, Stuart. It's great to be here.
2: Thank you so much for the warm welcome, Stuart. I'm thrilled to be here on the podcast and definitely open and looking forward to more opportunities in the future.
0: Yeah, so now I have a little surprise for the two of you today because we have another guest. And and Dave Dixon, who has been a contributor to iFormerX for many years, he served as our first social media editor some years ago. And he's the one who actually encouraged me to start the iFormerX podcast. So I'm delighted to welcome Dave back on our show today. Dr. Dixon is the McFarlane Professor of Pharmacy at the Virginia Commonwealth University and the Chair of the Department of Pharmacotherapy and Outcome Science. And and he's also the first author of the paper that we're going to discuss today. So Dave, I'm so pleased you can join us today.
3: Thanks so much for having me, Stuart, and for highlighting our work.
0: So, Dave, I, I always like to start each episode by putting the study that we're going to be reviewing into context. So before we get into the details of the study design and the results, can you tell us about the rationale for performing this analysis? We've known for a long time now that pharmacists in a variety of settings can help patients achieve healthier blood pressure. So why was this study really needed?
3: That's a great question. And a similar analysis to ours was performed by my co-authors from a Canadian perspective. But those results, of course, uh, are not very transferable to the United States, given the large differences in our healthcare systems. Ross Zayuki, who was the principal investigator of the trial that we used in our analysis, reached out to me about leading an analysis from a U.S.-based perspective. And I've been fortunate to have known Ross now for several years, and we coincidentally first connected on Twitter, or X, I guess, as we now call it. And we felt that there was a lack of a robust economic argument for pharmacist led prescribing models to manage hypertension in the United States. And there have certainly been other publications demonstrating that Certain pharmacy led models were indeed cost effective, such as the pharmacist led black barbershop model. But of course, that model is targeting a very specific population with a very specific intervention. And we wanted to provide robust data that used a community pharmacy based intervention that we felt could be replicated in a broader U.S. population. And we also wanted to do the analysis using data from a randomized trial that used community-based pharmacists with prescriptive authority, as we believe that this approach uh, has the potential for the greatest impact on improving blood pressure
0: outcomes. So, Stefania, let, let's talk about the paper that you reviewed in your iFormerX commentary. The, the paper is entitled Cost-Effectiveness of Pharmacist Prescribing for Managing Hypertension in the United States, and the study was published in JAMA Network Open in November, 2023, and we provide a link to that paper on our website. Now, I know it might be a little nerve wracking to have the study author sitting right here with us, but I'd love you to give us a, a broad overview of the study methods and some of the key findings.
2: So starting off first with the methods, the study used a pharmacoeconomic economic model to assess the impact of pharmacists prescribing medications for hypertension compared with usual care on long-term costs and health outcomes in the United States. So this pharmacoeconomic model included a Markov model to conduct the economic evaluation. And briefly, a Markov model is based on assumptions and or probabilities of an outcome occurring. And the model used in the study used data from the results of the RX Action trial. The RX Action trial was a randomized control trial published a few years ago. It enrolled adult patients with hypertension and studied the impact of pharmacists prescribing on hypertension control in community-dwelling patients in Alberta, Canada. The RxAction study found that pharmacist-led prescribing demonstrated a significant reduction in systolic blood pressure of about 18 millimeters of mercury. In the pharmacoeconomic study by Dr. Dixon and colleagues, their model assumed that the pharmacist prescribing intervention would reduce blood pressure with a resultant decreased risk of cardiovascular and kidney disease. So, using the findings from the RX Action study, it was assumed that a pharmacist prescribing antihypertensive therapy would lower systolic blood pressure by about 18 millimeters of mercury over six months. It was also assumed that a patient would visit the pharmacist six times in the first year and four visits per year after that. And it was assumed there would be no blood pressure lowering from baseline in the usual care arm. The outcomes of the study included cardiovascular events, end-stage kidney disease events, and quality-adjusted life years. There was also costs associated with the pharmacist visits, medications, and disease states that a patient could develop. The study ultimately evaluated cost-effectiveness outcomes which were calculated at both the individual level and scaled up to the U.S. population. Moving on to the results of the study, Looking at the individual patient level, over a 30-year time horizon, the pharmacist prescribing intervention yielded approximately 2,000 fewer cases of cardiovascular events and 8 fewer cases of end-stage kidney disease per 10,000 patients. The pharmacist prescribing intervention was also associated with an increase in quality adjusted life years. The cost reduction from fewer cardiovascular events more than offset the cost of pharmacist visits. And ultimately, assuming a rather conservative 50% adoption rate, the pharmacist prescribing intervention led to a savings of nearly $10,000 per person. The authors did not stop there. When the model was expanded to the population level, the pharmacist intervention would have a little over $1 trillion in cost savings. This is attributed to saving approximately 30 million life-years over 30 years. This is such a huge number and suggests that a pharmacist prescribing intervention to improve blood pressure control is both cost-effective and provides high economic value which should be of interest to payers and policymakers.
0: So Stefania, the, the study was pretty complicated, at least it was for me. I, I find pharmacoeconomic modeling to be kind of heady stuff. But there are some recommended practices that any good pharmacoeconomic analysis really should adhere to. You know, what are those standards and, and how well did this study adhere to them?
2: so the outcomes of a markov model are subject to the variables that are plugged into the model in the study well-established literature and landmark studies were used to obtain the variables entered into the model essentially the variables were based on best available evidence it's important to recognize that the real world scenario of a markov model may vary the authors did account for this possibility by conducting several sensitivity analyses by using varying costs and clinical and health-related quality of life parameters. So, for example, the original analysis assumed a systolic blood pressure reduction of 18 millimeters of mercury and used a cost of a pharmacist's visit as CPT Level 1 at $23. But then, the analysis was rerun varying systolic blood pressure reduction from 5 to 27 millimeters of mercury and cost of a pharmacist visit was varied up to $100 per initial visit and $50 for each follow-up visit. Accounting for different sensitivity adjustments, the analysis consistently found a benefit for the pharmacist prescribing intervention. The use of best evidence in conducting a sensitivity analysis for a number of variables are strengths of this study. The analysis was conservative in that there was an assumption of only a 50% uptake of the pharmacist prescribing intervention. The magnitude of saving depends on uptake of the intervention, but a 50% uptake might be an underestimate. If more than 50% of patients with hypertension would engage with pharmacists prescribing of antihypertensive therapy, the impact of the intervention would even be more profound. There are some other limitations to this analysis. First, there was an assumption that blood pressure remained unchanged from baseline in the usual care group. This assumption has a level of uncertainty. In the real world, there is a wide variation in practice, and some patients receiving usual care may actually experience improved blood pressure control. Another limitation in the study is that it may not be applicable to some populations of patients with hypertension, such as pregnant patients. Finally, the impact of telehealth on cost effectiveness of this model remains unknown. Essentially, this study's limitations highlight the fact that there is an evolving healthcare landscape.
0: Dave, every study has its strengths and weaknesses and limitations. Pharmacoeconomic studies, in particular, are based on models with lots of assumptions. So I'm certain you receive lots of comments from peer reviewers about your paper. Uh, you make some pretty big claims in the paper, uh, more than a trillion dollars in savings, and, and I'm certain. Uh, you're going to get a few letters to the editor. What are the biggest objections you anticipate you'll receive about the methods and assumptions in your model? And in thinking about this work, what are some things that we could do in future studies to strengthen the findings?
3: Yes, indeed. And that was one of the immediate lessons I learned publishing a paper in a, a highly visible journal, such as the JAMA line, is that Certainly the recognition and visibility of your work is great, but that also means more pushback. And so there's definitely a couple things I can highlight. One aspect, though, that has surprised me is some of the pushback regarding just the basic idea of a pharmacist being capable of managing hypertension. And there's actually an entire Reddit page uh, dedicated to our paper uh, with a few hundred mostly negative comments uh, about the idea of pharmacists managing hypertension. So this tells me that we still have a lot of work to do to change public perception and even perception among some of our colleagues. Another notable objection was that we assumed no change in blood pressure in the usual care scenario. With that said, in the trial, there was an 11.8 millimeter of mercury reduction in the systolic blood pressure in the comparative group. But the reason that we did not use that was that the comparator group was actually an active control in that the participants received a wallet card with their blood pressure readings, as well as written educational materials on hypertension. So we weren't comfortable saying that that was true usual care, since we know that most patients aren't receiving those additional materials and guidance. Additionally, hypertension, we know, is a progressive disease and we know most patients are uncontrolled, so we believed it was actually conservative to assume that there would be no change. To further address this, we did run several sensitivity analyses, as was highlighted earlier, against a wide range of expected blood pressure reductions and different time horizons, and the cost-effectiveness still held up. Another aspect is that this study comes across as very idealistic, and it's easy to point out reasons why this isn't possible to implement. But I would say that the same could have been said about pharmacists administering immunizations. Yet look at where we are now. And so I think that we want to be forward-looking and idealistic if we're going to move our profession forward. And our intent was to be forward-thinking and provocative and imagine what pharmacist-led hypertension care could really look like. What would that economic impact be if we open up the valve and released pharmacists to tackle this major uh, public health issue that we're facing, which is uncontrolled hypertension. As far as future studies, I think it's going to be really important that we have more randomized trials of pharmacist-led prescribing for hypertension that are of longer duration, because I think that is one of the things that we were limited by In that a lot of these trials are 6 to 12 months in duration, it would be great to have multi-year-long studies and maybe even trials that look at hard clinical endpoints so that we can more accurately determine the impact of pharmacist led models on the rates of, say, myocardial infarction or patients progressing to dialysis. The expectation that any type of preventative program must be cost-neutral or cost-saving is a little bit ridiculous because we don't expect the same of new therapeutic interventions that come to market. So I think we have a lot to, to do to change the way policymakers think about such programs.
0: So Candice, what are the implications of the findings of this study in practice? What are, what are some of the key issues that policymakers, insurers, payers, and other stakeholders should be paying attention to with regard to this paper? Well, Stefania
1: alluded to this already, but I think that this paper can serve as a powerful advocacy piece when speaking with payers, policymakers, and others. Dr. Dixon and the authors of this paper looked at pharmacists prescribing for hypertension with many different iterations of clinical costs and clinical effects and utilities. And in all of those iterations, the outcome pointed to the same thing, that pharmacists prescribing interventions are cost-effective with significant savings the healthcare system. So for me, the most important takeaway from this study was that it supports the expansion of pharmacy practice through prescriptive authority and reimbursement of pharmacy services. And pharmacists prescribing interventions should be readily accessible to patients and can be integrated through collaborative practice agreements, through standing orders, and statewide protocols. The analysis that we're discussing today indicates that there was a broad level of need for pharmacists to be providers of care, not just a select few pharmacists providing care. And so the biggest impact would be had when a large number of patients receive antihypertensive therapy prescribed by and managed by a pharmacist. I think that the bottom line is really that patients can benefit from increased access to pharmacist care and payers can benefit greatly as well.
0: Well, Candice Stefania, I'm so grateful that you agreed to review this paper and write a commentary about it. And Dave, it's been a real treat to have you as the first author of this important paper on the show today. And I'm awed by you and your collaborators. Well, I'm curious what our audience thinks about this paper. Sure, the findings shed a favorable light on the potential cost-effectiveness of pharmacists managing hypertension therapy. But do you think this evidence will be persuasive? Is this the final piece of the policy puzzle to make the case that pharmacists should be granted authority to initiate and modify antihypertensive therapy in the United States? What do you think? And if you are a board-certified geriatric pharmacist, you can earn board recertification credit for listening to this podcast and reading the written commentary posted on our website. We've partnered with the American Pharmacists Association to create the evidence-based practice literature evaluation series, which is available online, on demand, anytime, anywhere. You can learn more about that program and APHA's board prep and recertification. Just click on the link posted below the written commentary on our website. And lastly, I want to thank Michael Kelly, from Thomas Jefferson University in Philadelphia for his many contributions to iFormerX over the years. Uh, Michael was a PGY1 resident back in January 2015 when he participated in the first ever iFormerX podcast about the Heart Protection Study 2 Thrive trial, along with Evan Sisson. And through no fault of Michael, this first iFormerX podcast was kind of clunky and we all learn from that experience. That's all I can say. And that's what it's all about, learning. Michael went on to complete a PGY-2 residency in ambulatory care and has been on faculty at schools of pharmacy on both East and West Coast. But he's continued to be a regular contributor to iFormerX all these years by authoring commentaries, peer reviewing, and even serving on our advisory board. So thank you, Michael. I so appreciate your contributions to this community of practice and for introducing the next generation of pharmacists to ambulatory care and geriatric pharmacy practice. Well, until next time, this is Stuart Haynes, editor-in-chief of iFormerX, signing off.